Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore science, stories, and secrets of human behavior with leading authors, researchers, and practitioners. We do this through relaxed and raw interviews to deliver big ideas you can use in your work and home life. In this episode, we explore some very fundamental aspects of human nature through the lens of a researcher whose life's work, personal humility, and growth mindset are absolutely inspirational. I I couldn't agree more, Kurt. Dolly Chug is an associate professor and social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business. Her research focuses on the psychology of good people, and she has been published in many top managerial and academic publications. Dolly teaches leadership, management, and negotiations to MBA students and runs a book club with incarcerated students through the NYU Prison Education Program. Dolly's research spans decades, and a lot of it is compiled in her fantastic new book, The Person You Mean to Be. And we spent some time highlighting some of the key points she makes in the book, but she always, always brought the conversation back to practical ways we can all do a little bit better, how we can be a little more intentional in our lives. And as Dolly says, try to be more goodish instead of just trying to be good. Yeah. And we we want to do a quick shout out here to Daniel and Louise at Orange Wall, who partner with us on editing our episodes. They're just getting started and they're doing a great job. We really appreciate their hard work and effort that they're putting into each episode of Behavioral Grooves. Yes. Thank you, Daniel and Louise. And we also want to thank those of you who are writing reviews or leaving us quick ratings on the pod service that you listen to. It turns out that ratings and reviews go a long way in helping new listeners find us. So if you like this episode, let someone know. We would really, really appreciate it. Yeah. So with that, we invite you to sit back and relax with a nice warm cup of goodish brew and enjoy our conversation with Dolly Chug. Dolly Chug, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Hey, we got through the the tech gremlins, and now we get to start (laughs) with a speed round. So Tim is going to start with our speed round questions. I am. So, Dolly, which would you prefer, dinner with your favorite musician or favorite athlete? Ooh, athlete. Okay. Ooh. Anybody come to mind? So many. I, I am a former athlete. And I am a big sports fan, but Serena Williams was the first one that came to mind. But there's so many. Colin Kaepernick would be the the other one. Oh, wow. That would be fantastic. Both of those. You could have a a, a nice group dinner. Like you have. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You get Serena and and Colin. Colin. And that would be nice. There you go. All right. Easy question. Second one. Coffee or tea? Tea. Tea. Okay. Bravo. Bravo. You're in, you're in our camp on that one, by the if, way. If you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said Diet Coke. <laughs> That's okay. But, it's but okay. That's okay. Now. You can't see that uh, Tim and I probably both have a have a Coke Zero sitting on our, on our, on our yeah, yeah, desk right uh, now. Okay. So third question, beach vacation or mountain vacation? Any vacation, but mountain sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Okay. All right. Final speed round question, Dolly. Mm-hmm. Should I try to be good or goodish? Ooh, look at you. Nice. 
well done. You should try to be goodish because trying to be good is getting in the way of you being better. Oh, all right. So which is a main concept in, in your book. Why don't you tell people first a little bit about the difference between good and goodish, and then let's go, we'll, we'll do some backstory on what uh, got you interested in writing this book. But let's talk about good and goodish first. Awesome. Awesome. I love that format, by the way. I think I'm going to steal that at my teaching. The little speed <laughs> oh, do, do, do it. Please, please. <laughs> totally. Before you know it, you're like in it. Um, Lift it. Yeah. I, I will. Um, yeah. So, so the, the, you, you, you've helped us sort of get right to the heart of my book, which is this notion that there, there's a lot of data that suggests many people care about feeling like a good person and being a good person. That's called moral identity. And the research is really robust that while we may define good person differently, and we do, there's lots of different ways people think about what is being a good person. Whatever that is for you, uh, you, you do care about that identity. And that that seems like a robust uh, way of being for individuals and societies. But the challenge that I'm really interested in is that once we start holding tightly to that identity, and let's take it into the domain of things like sexism and racism and homophobia and ableism and ageism, all the isms <laughs> and obias. And a lot of us have a belief that like, we don't want to be those things. We, 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 we want to not be racist, not be sexist. And and being a good person means not being those things. Mm. And that gets us into a little bit of a sticky situation because we have lots of insight into how the human mind works. Fifty last 50 years of cognitive psychology and social psychology and neuropsychology makes it very clear. Three Nobel Prizes makes it very clear that the human mind does a lot of its work on autopilot. And it uses a lot of shortcuts and heuristics. And those shortcuts work really well lots of times, but sometimes they actually, these shortcuts are like little stereotypes or little rules of thumb that are, that are wrong, that are not, they're not correct. And they lead to things like unconscious bias. They lead to, to us, um, uh, making really poor choices. And when that happens, our good person identity is suddenly, you know, at a juxtaposition with, the fact that I have just in class used a, a term that's uh, inappropriate or that I, you know, I'm, I'm saying class because I'm a professor or I've confused two black students for each other who look mm. nothing alike in class in front of everybody. Or I've assigned a reading and had a student, a reading that I've assigned a million times, quite frankly, and, and read a million times and have a student confront me saying it's a sexist reading and and I get very defensive and then I look at it at the page they're pointing to and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's such a sexist reading. How did I never notice that? Wow. Um, so, so, you know, and these, I'm just rattling off like a few recent examples. And, and so my good person identity in that moment is really like, if, if it's brittle, if I'm holding it very tightly, it, it's going to reject those moments. It's not going to, I'm not going to learn from those moments. I'm not going to accept that feedback. I'm not going to accept accountability in front of my students. I'm going to deflect and reject and deny and um, defend. And, and our minds are really good at that. And so what I've been pushing for is rather than trying to be a good person, we want to try to be goodish people. And by goodish, I mean, 
a higher standard than good person, not a lower standard. It's not settling for or good enough. It's it's using Carol Dweck's research on growth mindsets and fixed mindsets to uh, say good yeah. person is this brittle fixed mindset where I'm supposed to just know it. And if I don't know it, I'm going to just move away from it and, and pull away from it. In a growth mindset, no matter where I am, whether I'm sort of a beginner or advanced, a good person, I'm always getting better. I'm always growing. Therefore, those moments when I'm confronted by that student or I embarrass myself or I say something wrong are not moments for me to deflect and reject. They're moments for me, I mean, to be mortified, no doubt, um, to be remorseful for harm I've done, but to grow. And, and that's what the data actually says, that when you're in that growth mindset or what I call being goodish, in those moments, your neuroscience data says we actually see our minds flooding attention towards the mistake so that we can grow and learn from it. And, and that's what I think is so powerful about being a goodish person is you're, you're better than you were last week, last month, last year. Why aren't we already doing this? Like, you know, this just seems like such a great idea. Why aren't we really like, why is it so? Yeah. And, and I'm, and I feel I, I'm going to make a pejorative statement here, but why does it seem so difficult to do? Yeah. yeah, no. And I, and I relate to it. It's difficult. I think for all of us, you know, there's something, um, you know, I, I use this term psychological literacy. I don't think we have a lot of psychological literacy about how our mind works. And, and in fact, how similar the functioning of our ethical mind or our social mind is to the rest of our mind. So, you know, Herb Simon won the Nobel Prize for his work on bounded rationality. And, 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 and the insight there was that a human mind has limited computing power and processing speed and, and storage capacity. And that sort of intuitively makes sense, especially now that we all live with our devices and computers and and, and have gotten very literate in those speakers. <laughs> um, but even back then, you know, it sort of, it resonated. And, and so this notion of bounded rationality allowed us to see the human mind is, is, has systematic constraints on the quality of its decision-making because it will rely on these shortcuts. Somehow that mind, which, you know, it, it's when we, we think about that kind of decision-making, we're thinking about, should we launch this product or, you know, should we, budget money for this or that, or should we buy this product? It's the exact same mind. It's literally the same mind that's <laughs> being used to decide who should I hire or is, um, was that, you know, uh, did I just witness some unethical behavior? Was I a bystander or am I telling a joke that is pejorative to, to a community of people? It's exact same mind. So if, if our mind is subject to bounded rationality and these systematic constraints on the quality of its decision-making, why wouldn't it also be subject to systematic constraints on the quality of our ethical decision-making? Um, and that's the work that I've done with, with Max Bazerman, who I know you know, and Mazarin Banaji and Molly Kern is on bounded ethicality. Uh, and we're, we're really, I mean, talk about just as a spinoff. This is like Joni loves Chachi off a of happy days. Like we're just, <laughs> we're taking the same thing. We're just, uh, but it's better than Joni loves Chachi was. Uh, thank um, goodness. Thank and goodness. again, for, for listeners, that was a seventies show that, so oh, if you're under, <laughs> under 30, go back and, and look, I'm sure there's old YouTubes of it, but yeah. yes. we'll, we'll, we'll put notes in the show notes. We'll have to use all the Grey's Anatomy spinoffs. <laughs> <laughs> differentiate by age. Yeah, so bounded ethicality is really the exact same idea. And and I think to answer your question, I don't think we 
get that. I, I don't think our psychological literacy, our knowledge about how the human mind works, it's growing. I think it's grown so much even in the last 10 years, maybe because of the, so many like popularizations. Like, like your podcast is a great example of where you're really translating and, and popularizing behavioral science in a way that makes it accessible. But but I, I think that's the, kind of the the barrier right now. So is there a role for psychological literature to be introduced into our educational system at an earlier age? Because right now it is one of those things. Who did we talk to, Tim, who was saying, you know, how many geography teachers are there versus in, in geography classes versus psychology classes? That was, in, yeah, that was uh, Steve Martin and uh, Nula Walsh. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, an you know, an interesting and not to say anything bad about geography teachers, but this idea that we just have not kept up with the advances that have been made in this realm. And is this something that can be taught? I mean, from your perspective. Absolutely. It's so, it's so absolutely can get be taught. And I'm embarrassed that I never thought of that until you just said it. Like, <laughs> that's true. I mean, I have two teenagers. Why? Yeah, you're right. Like th that's, <laughs> that's, it's quite genius actually. And, and I think it shows up at the highest levels. Like right now during in this terrible pandemic, we need the biologists and the chemists and the, the doctors. And we, we need all those researchers, but we, we seem to have not put social scientists at the forefront of the behavioral change that is so necessary for us to get past this pandemic. And, you know, we've, you've often heard, I, I once submitted a paper, I can't remember what journal it was, but they had a special issue where the whole premise of your submission was, what if instead of the president having a council, this is in the United States, a council of economic advisors, they had a council of psychological advisors? Wow. Right? Yeah. And yeah. isn't it strange that we don't? I mean, yeah. when you think about it. So so I think it's at every level. You, you, you're you helping me think about why aren't we building this literacy young? And I think it shows up when we get to our most consequential decision makers. And I think there's a really interesting point that you bring up there is in this current pandemic that we have, we have done some fantastic things in, in developing vaccines as shortly, as quickly as we have and identifying how, you know, the coronavirus transfers yes. where we have fallen short to a certain degree is in the behavioral change that needs to happen, at least particularly, you know, when we don't have a vaccine that is fully out there within the world or even getting that vaccine to be taken because people exactly. are, are afraid of it. So, yeah, I exactly. think that's I think that's a really great insight. Yeah, and I, I know I, I believe you've spoken or you know of Katie Milkman and, and she and others are doing such important work in that realm. You know, the study of, for example, norms, how norms yeah. show behaviors in ways that we don't expect, the study of influence and persuasion, the study of uh, habit change, like all of these there's there's so much research on these topics that's yeah. very relevant. Yeah, Katie, they just released a recent brand new research on vaccines. It was a flu vaccine, mm -hmm. but, you know, text messaging and how yes. different text messages impact uptake of a flu vaccine, which, again, we need to have more of that. And that needs to get transferred down into, you know, policy and, and various different pieces of that. OK, we we digress. We always digress. <laughs> this is how we go. <laughs> I, I wanted to, to if we could talk a little bit more about the book, because I've been reading the, the past few years uh, a lot more about uh, racism and mm -hmm. uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, uh, White Fragility, I thought was, was really nice. But mm -hmm. uh, 
but what what you do in um, the person you mean to be is you walk through that the headwinds and tailwinds story of of this 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 woman you this character you call Colleen, mm. and, and and you talk about what it she's a white woman. And, and may, you talk about, well, what, what was her life like? How did she come to where she is? And what would her life have been and how would it have been different if she had not been white? And so I was wondering, would you, would you be kind enough just to, to walk through this, this particular story? Because I, I found it really meaningful, to the way that you use the, the headwinds and tailwinds kind of concept about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I'll share two little uh, sort of backstage nuggets on that before I walk you through. One is Please that- do. yes. Yeah, I love the backstage nuggets. Um, one, one is that that is the chapter in the book that I get asked about the most and gets the most reader response. And two- that is the chapter that wasn't supposed to be in the book that was <laughs> added to the book. Um, and, uh, and after I walk you through it, I think it'll be apparent why it was a late ad. It was, it was my own uh, limited understanding of these issues that, that sort of, you know, initially I didn't see the need for it. So, so what the chapter does is try to bridge between uh, what I am trained in, which is thinking about individuals, and I'm trained as a social psychologist, and so we think about individuals and the effect their situations have on them or the effect other people and teams have on individuals and sort of within the individual mind. And so unconscious bias or implicit bias, which was very central to my training in my PhD program, uh, is a big part of that field. And I set out to write a book that, that was largely centered on the psychology of good people and, and the ways in which we sometimes, you know, it's back to our, how we think of good people. We aren't sort of living up to our image of ourselves as good people. And, and unconscious bias is one way that happens. And so that's what I set out to write this book about. And I was, I, I got to be kind of a amateur journalist and interview like 40 people for the book to get real, oh. real those really juicy real world stories and just hear about how do real people in real situations grapple with their own mistakes and their own learnings in these spaces. And as I was doing those interviews, I was maybe like, I want to say, you know, at least 10 or 12, maybe 15 interviews in and people kept bringing up this word systemic. And then, you know, I, I kind of know, I know what that, I mean, it sounds like system. I, I know what it means, but I didn't understand why they kept bringing it up. Um, because here I am like, you know, social psychologist, I think about individuals and I think about what's going on in your mind. Why do they keep talking about system? Hmm. What does that have to do with it? And I finally, like, it came up enough that I felt like I needed to sort of, you know, do one of those, like, pretend you know what it is, but then go spend a day Googling it. So you can <laughs> <laughs> like, nodding like I know what that means. But That's every day for me. <laughs> <laughs> right? What can we do before Google? Yeah, so I, so I, I did that. I kind of did this, like, tangential um, deep dive. And suddenly, like, boom, the light bulb that others were seeing that I wasn't went off, which is these two things are really connected. What's happening with the individual and what's happening in systems and and, and, and sort of more broadly. And and what a big thing that helped me understand that, and then I promise I will get to Colleen, was the writing of Debbie Irving, who writes about headwinds and tailwinds. And that that is the metaphor that helps explain systems. And the, the key in that metaphor is, you know, let's say you were to go for a walk or a run or a bike ride and 
you're like, I'm going to go down to the fire hydrant that's at the end of that street. And then I'm going to U-turn back home. And on your way there, the wind's at your back and you feel like, Ooh, this no yeah. car thing's working. I'm cranking, you know, I've got this. And then you U-turn on your way back, the wind's in your face and suddenly you're struggling to keep going or you're struggling to keep your speed or you're struggling to keep your motivation. And what's interesting is when you were on your way out with that tailwind, you didn't feel that the system was sort of, you know, working for you. You felt like you were doing it. And then on your way back, when the system, the headwind was against you, you could feel it. And it was, it was far more visible. And if somebody were looking out the window, they probably, when they saw you struggling, wouldn't have realized it was because of the headwind. They would just be like, mm, you know, Dolly doesn't seem to be much of a runner. <laughs> she doesn't seem too motivated or, you know, she, I guess she comes from a community that doesn't value running, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so this, this suddenly clarified for me what we mean by systems and why it connects to things like unconscious biases, that the, the two things are related. When I'm forming uh, unconscious biases in my mind, I'm starting to associate black people and, and less education, I'm doing it because there's systems around me that have led to black people having less education in the United States. But I'm seeing it through the eyes of just like, it's forming these individual associations in my mind, and I'm not noticing the systems that are causing it. So I'm starting to make these individual level attributions or these community level attributions. And and so in that chapter, I, I tried to explain to myself, quite frankly, <laughs> how this all worked. And I used, um, it's the only chapter where I don't use people's real names. Um, and, and this was at the request of the three people I interviewed in that chapter, where I took three individuals, all of whom had kind of a similar, they were all three white and all three in, uh, had a father or a grandfather that served in World War II. And as a veteran was had the benefits of the GI Bill. The GI Bill, um, it, it, as, as, as some of us might remember learning in history class, a, allowed veterans when they came back from World War II to buy a home at, at a zero or low cost mortgage and to go to college for free. And we often hear that it led to the rise of the middle class, the rise of the suburb in America, the, a, a huge sort of boost in our sort of economic prosperity as a country. And and all of that is true, except it turns out that the way the law was structured and implemented, it essentially excluded black veterans. Mm. And we had yeah. many, many black veterans in World War II. And, and so white veterans saw this huge spike in homeownership. White veterans saw this huge spike in college attendance. And, you know, what's what if you want to predict whether someone's going to go to college or own a home, ask them whether their parents went to college or own a home. That's statistically one of the best predictors we know. And so you see generation after generation and Colleen, you know, representing these three real people is able to sort of unpack generation by generation how the tailwinds accumulated for her, just starting with that GI Bill. And uh, then she does this little comparison of what if I had been black and like does a side by side, what would have happened at every step generationally, you know, based off of sort of just the basic probabilities of what happened to a white veteran versus a black veteran. And we are able to fast forward it to today and see how the headwinds and tailwinds of the past are still sitting in the present and how they're, they're kind of playing back and forth with our individual level 
biases and our systemic biases. You know, the GI Bill was a systemic bias. Another systemic bias was the fact that most of us did not learn that the GI Bill was for white veterans. We learned Mm -hmm. it was for veterans. So we're not seeing it for what it is. We're seeing black people have less education and we think, oh, I guess they're not that into education or they're not that motivated or they come from a community that doesn't value education. And so in that chapter, I think what I was able to do for myself is suddenly see beyond this is just about individuals and their own thoughts. This is about us seeing how these replicate across generations and across systems in ways that are often not visible to us. We often just think that it's happening because individuals are making certain choices. Yeah. The the headwind tailwind, I think, is a wonderful analogy to that. And I think there's I want to just make sure that I, I think I get this is that even the person that you mentioned, like watching from the window and and seeing you struggle into the headwind, but they can't see the wind. Right. And, and, and I think what is a key piece here is that we haven't as, as, as a white male, you know, in my early fifties, I have probably never had to do that U-turn and face into the wind um, that many of, uh, you know, people of color or women or, you know, whatever uh, Mm -hmm. other those are. And so, as you said, you don't realize that you have a tailwind behind you. You only notice that when you turn around and you face into that headwind. And I think that is really uh, one of the pieces that I took from this is just that, yeah, we we look and we we look out to your point. You're looking out the window and you see these people struggling, and you're going, "Wow, that, why are they struggling on all these different things?" And it's it's interesting. You talk about the systemic component, and my wife is a real estate agent here in Minneapolis, and one of the things that they've that she's been looking into recently is just there. You know, in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, particularly in in Minneapolis, they had put covenants on the lands, mm-hmm. and and many of those covenants were. Like who could potentially, and they they stay with the house regardless. They're still actually on the books. They can't be enforced anymore, but they are like, if you are of African descent, of of Negro descent is what they, how they were written. Or if you are Jewish descent or of Chinese descent, you cannot own this land. And so if you look at the way that Minneapolis is structured, there is one portion of the, of the city where it's highly segregated uh, yeah. in North Minneapolis because they didn't have those covenants, whereas the rest of the, of the city did. And yes. it, it, again, yes. we and never knew, I never knew that. Right? That's so powerful what you've shared and that, you know, it's often referred to as redlining because it also speaks to whether or not banks would loan mm-hmm. money. So even if you could, would be allowed to buy the house, you couldn't because you couldn't get a loan for the house. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful segment that I just saw last week. Somebody who had read my book also happened to be watching CBS This Morning, the, the TV show. And they did a seven-minute segment where the journalist, and I'm so embarrassed, I can't remember his name, but like whoever the like anchor guy is on CBS This Morning, Tony, somebody, he went to, I believe, his hometown. Mm. and tried to understand he's white and he wanted to understand generationally what had happened leading up to him growing up in that town. And he uncovered a lot of what you just described in terms of who could live where, who could get bank loans where. Um, And if you couldn't get a bank loan, that meant you rented. And if it meant you rented, 
a few things happen. You didn't accumulate wealth, right? Like most, if you're right. a homeowner, your home is probably your greatest asset, most valuable asset you own. Right. Um, you weren't able to have that wealth gain in value and then be passed on to your children. So generational wealth transfer is affected. It, it's it's really profound, and it's it's in Minneapolis and pretty much every community in America. And yeah. a lot of people think it just happened in the South, and that's not true. It's it's literally all over the country. Um, I, I will tell you, and I, I didn't ask for permission to tell the story, so I'm not going to name her. But I, I have a member of my extended family who is an entrepreneur and she wanted to start like a pizza parlor or something. And, and, um, and they discovered in the deed that technically, you know, she's Indian American, like I am technically she couldn't uh, do so. Oh my gosh. And she went and she, you know, went and fought it. You know, I don't know if it was ever going to be enforced or not, but she, she, she went and had the, the thing fixed through legal means. Yeah. Tony Ducopel, is that, is that? The, that sounds right. Yes. Thank you. Yes. The magic of Google is really, <laughs> really good. Yes. There you go. If, if you need the actual link, I tweeted it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, we, we will definitely have it there. Uh, could we, uh, would you mind if we spent just a couple minutes on um, your January uh, newsletter where you sure. talked about the HUM, the HMMM? <laughs> model. And and by the way, just got to love that when you said, uh, I think you said that this, this month has been the long, the longest year or oh something like, and, and, you know, Kurt and I live in Minneapolis and after March 25th, when George Floyd was murdered, mm-hmm. like we felt like, you know, um, or excuse me, May 25th, but uh, yeah. it felt like June was the longest year that we've ever mm. lived, you know, in, in Minneapolis. So yeah. Uh, we we totally get that, but uh, but t- t- tell us a little bit about tell the listeners about the HMM the HMM model if you yeah. would. Well, I'm so excited that you read the newsletter. This is very funny, of course, to the dear good people Love newsletter, it. which uh, is free and monthly, and I hope people sign up for it. It's just something where I want to give people a short little five minute read every month. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can remember. So the idea of that, the hmm framework, which I spent way too much time trying to come up with, uh, <laughs> that little acronym. <laughs> I remember, I remember being like on a treadmill being like, come on, come on, come up with the letters. Um, <laughs> the, the idea behind that newsletter was I wanted to offer the, the tool of thought experiments. The, the idea of how can we increase our, build our muscles of, of being more inclusive by running these little thought experiments in our head that help us notice things that we might not notice naturally, um, because that's part of the problem, right? That is the psychological literacy. That is the headwinds and tailwinds. These are things, there's a lot of stuff we don't notice. So getting mm-hmm. better noticers is, is really big. So I, I offered four types of thought experiments that fall into this these letters, H, M, 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 hmm, and then I, I think I included a little picture of Arsenio Hall for, again, yes. I'm, I'm dating my generation here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. In the 90s or 80s, I think Arsenio Hall used to have a late night talk show and he used to say things that make me say, hmm. <laughs> um, and so the H stood for humdrum. Like what if I had a humdrum identity, an identity that didn't stand out? And I used Schitt's Creek as an example. It's a TV show where uh, it's a small town rural that has no homophobia at all it, it it is you're treated no differently you have no different issues to navigate if you're straight if you're queer if you're gay if you're bisexual if you're pansexual 
and so this this identity that on every other sort of TV show we've ever watched would would not be humdrum is incredibly humdrum. And in doing that, you suddenly can see, you can notice how all the ways in which we have created barriers and biases that make it difficult to be that identity. So so one thought experiment was what assume a certain identity is humdrum, what what happens? Another identity was you may have to help me if I can't remember them. I think there was an M that was my identity. Mixed, mixed up, my mixed identity, up identity and masked identity. Masked identity. Go. Yeah. And so maybe we shouldn't go through all of them because I, I feel like no. I'll, I'll ramble for a while. But I, one of my favorites of those is the masked identity, which speaks to the uh, John Rawls, who's a philosopher, has this really cool thought experiment called Veil of Ignorance. What if you had to make a decision not knowing who you were and you would eventually know who you were after your decision was made? So, you know, what if you had to decide, you know, who should get the COVID vaccine, not knowing your age, your race, where you live, what your occupation is, what your health conditions are? What if what if you had to make all those decisions versus if, if you made that decision knowing exactly who you are? I'm a I am a 52 year old, you know, mostly healthy woman teaching remotely living in New York, you know, would I make a different decision with that identity than if I didn't know my identity? Mm. And so that, so, you know, my, my little M in the hmm acronym was masked identity for that veil of ignorance. And I think that's a really interesting one for, you know, being able to notice the ways in which, like, you know, how would you build public transportation if you didn't know where you lived, mm. right? Like if you yeah. didn't know if you were going to, if you, what if you, how would you build public transportation if you didn't know if you could afford a car? W- would it affect sort of the systems you'd put in place? And, and so the, these, these little thought experiments, I think help us notice ways in which where the headwinds and tailwinds sit or where our own biases, conscious or unconscious might sit. Yeah. So obviously those are, those are thought experiments. And as you talk about this. It's this identifying our own blind spots, which is a very difficult thing to do. Are there other things besides some thought experiments to help us realize some of the things that we might be missing in other things that you've come across? Absolutely. And and I say all this with like the the idea that I'm constantly discovering more and more of mine. So I mean, I, I, so I'm hoping I'm hoping that like to me, this is like an Easter egg hunt. You know, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's like they're there. Go find them. You know, this is not like oh, I hope I don't find them. It's like it's good news when you do. Actually, it means you're closer to you know, goodish versus good. Yeah, you're goodish. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, some of the there, you know, there's from a, a scientific measure standpoint, there is something called the implicit association test or the yep. IED that's free and anonymous and takes about 15 minutes of uninterrupted time on a computer with a desk, uh, internet connection, a high-speed internet connection. And you can go to implicit.harvard.edu to take that and you'll get results uh, right after you finish. Um, and that's, it's not a perfect measure. It's not meant to be used for anything high stakes, but it's a good little peak and diagnostic tool that you can ideally take more than once. So that, that's one place. But you can also do things where you just look at your own, sort of start being an auditor of your own daily patterns. And so, like, for example, 
what if you looked at whatever you consume, like maybe you're into movies or TV shows or podcasts or books or social media, whatever it is, and, and do an audit of, you know, the last 10 of those things you consumed, you know, the mm-hmm. last 10 folks you followed on Instagram or the last 10 books you read or, and, and what would you notice? What do you notice about the similarities between the voices that are centered in those those last 10? What do you notice about how those voices are similar to your own? And just look for patterns. You know, I, we were reorganizing our books, you know, I had sort of like, just everything was scattered, you never knew where it was, what room it was in or whatever. And we're I'm a big book family, I'm a big reader. And, and so um, I, you notice I'm saying that to redeem myself for making so many TV references. <laughs> They're all good. They're all good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so all these books I have. So, um, so I, I was reorganizing the books. I was like, oh, I'm going to do them by genre. You know, I'm going to have like a memoir section, whatever. So I did that, and then I was sort of very proudly looking at this this set of shelves with all these memoirs I had read, and then I was like, no, it's weird. These are like all by men. I'm mm, like, wow. You know, it's like, whoa. Like, there's like a couple that are uh, memoirs written by women about their lives, but really they're by men. And I didn't know that. I didn't realize. And I love memoirs and I, I often read them. I often listen to them on Audible, like read by the authors. So I'm literally hearing their voices. And I hadn't noticed I was doing that, that I was. Wow. I was sort of modeling one. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that. So so that was like a good little audit for me. It was unintentional, actually. That one just happened. Um, but I, for the last like year or two, I've very actively been reading uh, memoirs written by women or people who identify as non-binary. And it's, it's, it's been really interesting. I'm so glad I've done that. Yeah, I like the idea of the audit and being able to look at things because oftentimes... You know, we go through life and we just we are on autopilot, as you mentioned earlier, and just taking an accounting of what we've done. It's why I, I journal every night. And and oh. sometimes that is one of those aspects where you look back on the day and, and a there's a, an element of, of for me to, to remember, because, you know, two weeks ago is, is like ancient history for me. So I always have something to, I can go back and go, wait, what did I do then? OK, right. uh, but there is that element, too, of of putting down those things and and having that on paper or in some format where you're going, wow, I do watch a lot or I read a lot of, you know, <laughs> memoirs by men as opposed to, you know, a, a wide variety or wow, I'm watching a whole lot more TV and I always think of myself as a book reader. <laughs> but if I actually look at my past two two months, I spent a whole lot more time watching TV than I did reading books. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I love you that you do that. I, I, I think about journaling every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those interesting things. So, Dolly, tell us a little bit about what's on your playlist these days. Do you have a COVID playlist? Well, um, I don't have a COVID specific playlist. I, I will, I'll tell you one thing that's funny is, um, so I'm, I teach, I'm teaching on Zoom, uh, you know, for the past year. And one of the things we've been doing is when I do the background survey, which every student submits before the first class, it, I ask them to all submit a one high energy feel good song, whatever they love. It can be any genre, any language, any generation. Uh, anything. Uh, clean lyrics only. I learned the hard way. I have to say clean lyrics only. <laughs> this is a pro tip there. So, but then we, we you know, we, 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 with the help of um, either my kids or my 
the wonderful teaching assistants, we put together a, a Spotify playlist of their songs. And that's oh. been a real joy because first of all, unlike what my teenagers predicted, my late 20, early 30 something students do like some of the songs I like. So there, <laughs> originally I put the playlist together and my kids are really mortified. And so, so that's been one. So I, I, so I don't have like specific songs to say, but I will say that has been a real joy to crowdsource songs. The songs that I like to write to when I, when I wrote the, the person you mean to be, and I'm, I'm working on another book right now is um, weirdly, it's like Broadway songs, like, like kind of contemporary musicals like Hamilton and In the Heights and oh, yeah. um, something rotten and just, I don't know, there's something, I don't know if there's some, like newsies, like there's something about those musicals that always has this kind of like aspirational, they're, they're usually not, they're, every song isn't about like romance. It's more about like, you know, sticking with it and persevering and, yeah. and I know them all by heart. And so they, so they don't distract me. They feel background. And so I tend to write to those and, and recently, I got the most lovely little fan mail thing from Alex Lackamore, who's the musical director of Hamilton and In the Heights. <sighs> and he had read my book and sent such a lovely note. And he had no idea that I had written the book <laughs> to his album. That, <laughs> so that's fantastic. That's yeah. amazing. And it's it's interesting because when we've asked this question with other, we, we ask everybody pretty much this this element. And do you do you um, listen to music when you work? Uh -huh. And 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 there are people. There are definitely camps. Right? People do. I can't work when, and have music on. And there are people that do. But most often, when they're doing like hard work, like writing and and things where they have to, it's like I can listen to music, but it has to be something without lyrics. It has to be yeah. uh, more background. And so just the Broadway piece for you, I'm like going, those are the ones that I actually have to get up and sing to like you going know. on. And you like, it's like you, you know, the words and it's, so that's really fascinating that, that you I can know. take that to the next level. I love it. I no, I mean, I'm, you're right. It is weird because you, because it's, it's, that's one of the things of multitasking is you can't multitask language, two modes of language, right? You can do something with your hands and language at the same time, but you can't do two things with language. So I must be kind of going in and out of hearing the words, but I think that's where it helps that I know them. But there's also those, those kind of lyrics are, at least for those particular shows, are brilliantly written. There's a lot yeah. of wordplay. Yeah. There's a lot of precision in, in choice of words. And so I do feel inspired like yeah. i feel like the craft of writing is is something to to to, to aspire to. you have to live up to the quality that you're you're having in your ears at that moment exactly. so exactly exactly <laughs> it's very inspiring in a way that you know a lot of other songs that i also love you know Bruno Mars or something, but but like that doesn't quite inspire the like attention to word choice in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> no editorial on Bruno Mars there. No, but, I love yeah. Bruno Mars. We have sound yeah. songs will get me going every day, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dolly, thank you so very, very much for being our guest on Behavioral Grooves today. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. You, you all made me laugh and you made me think, and I appreciate both of those things. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Dolly, have our free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our good-ish, ishy, ish mind. <laughs> good, good-ishy? <laughs> good-ish, ishy. You know, we, 
you know, good is out there. Good is that really, you know, oh my gosh. And then wow. there's good ish. You try to be good ish. And then we just, I think, try to be good ish 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 kind of, oh, you know, good. not quite. <laughs> oh, I see. Just a good. little bit above ish ish. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, just well, one, one little bit. We come from the land of Wake, Lake Wobegon, so the whole <laughs> Lake Wobegon effect is, certainly applies to us. So all of the children are above average here. <laughs> so yeah, if we fall we're into not above that, average, so you know, and we're not children. There you go. There you maybe go. Maybe just by by the fact that we live here might put us in that category, but all probably right. not. <laughs> probably look at the base rates. Look at the base rates, Tim. There you yeah. go. So I was thinking that maybe we could frame our grooving session with this episode about Dolly sort of as an opportunity to apply some really great ideas to our lives. Like what lessons did we learn from our conversation with Dolly? What, what were the implications? And so I was thinking maybe we think about it in terms of what does she leave us with rather than the, the way that we approach other grooving sessions. What, what do you think about that, Kurt? Yes. And yeah. <laughs> I think that that, uh, is a great idea. No, no, no. This is fantastic. I, I, I love the concept of looking at this and kind of thinking through what the implications are for each of the different factors that that she talked about. Because she brought up some really great ideas as we went through those. And if we can apply those to what we do in our everyday life and in our work life, I think we're going to have a better life. So there we go. Let's do it. So that's a great place to start with really great ideas. And one of the great ideas that really struck me was taking a step back. This idea that we can examine our life if we if we pull back just a second and look at it as a journey, right? Not be so instantaneously judgmental that this was good or this was bad. Not instantly categorize it as the simple yes, no, but take a step back every now and then. Be intentional. And I think that we can we can think about a better life tomorrow or in the next thing, you know, not just criticize, well, it's, it's not good enough or it is good enough, but there could be something better next. I agree that stepping back is great. It's hard, right? And the, the implicit biases that we have that we aren't even aware of that impact how we view the world, the fact that our emotional response is real and it, it impacts how we then cognitively think about things. So this is a wonderful idea to step, take a step back. And I think to put this into action, one of the things is to maybe set up these when then statements, right? So when X happens, then I will take 10 seconds to think about this. So in other words, use an example, right? When my kids are pushing my buttons and I'm about to explode with them, all right, let's do a count of 10. And then let's think through that count of 10 to take that step back and reframe this for myself. And that's not saying that I'm not ever going to explode at my kids or my dog. My dog is probably even a better example right now these days, right? <laughs> right. So, all right. Those when he eats my dog that chews up every goddamn thing in the house, right? <laughs> when he does that, instead of just yelling, I need to take a moment and step back and then assess that and, 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 and look, all right, is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? Is this something, how do I respond to this? And, and particularly as I think about responding with, with the dog, and this is, we're getting into behavioralism here, but you know, the, the immediate response that you have after a dog does something, uh, you know, he's going to be looking at me and like, he chewed up that the, you know, Tupperware 
an hour ago. He doesn't know that I'm yelling at him about that because I just found it. Right. So he's going to get mixed signals. And so those are those things to, to be able to to maybe put some of those stop gaps in there because it's too easy in our life just to be on autopilot and just to go through. And it's really hard, even with the best intentions to say, oh, I'll take a step back unless we have some simple nomenclatures to kind of make that happen for us. And that ties into the second concept that that I wanted to make sure we cover. And that's this idea of don't holding on, don't hold on quite so tight. I love the way Dolly framed that and the words that she used. Don't hold on quite so tightly. This idea that, okay, we can really lock down on our ideas and we can just say, well, this is the way it is. But she's kind of challenging us to say, don't be so fundamental in it mm. about anything, about actually the world is complex and changing and there might be new ways of looking at things, even though it's easier to hold on to the status quo. Don't hold on quite so tight to that. So hold on loosely, but don't <laughs> let go. From, I mean, the 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 wisdom special. of thirty eight special is just shining <laughs> through here, right? This idea yeah. you bring up a really good point, and I think again, from an application perspective of this, it's one of the factors that I loved about Annie Duke when we think about. What Annie Duke was talking about from her perspective of thinking in bets, thinking in probabilities. So w- there is almost not very many things in this life that I can say with 100 percent surety. Right. There's a lot of right. things I can say that are 99, 98, 97 percent sure, but very few that I'm 100 percent or even zero percent sure. Right. So this idea of thinking about things and putting probabilities on them has this element that allows us to hold on to things, but maybe not as tightly that we are able to, all right, I get com- I get information that is contrary to what I have as a belief. So, all right, am I going to just drop it now? No, but my 98% surety might go down to 96 now. And I think that is a way of being able to apply this in our real world lives. That's a fantastic way of thinking about it, Kurt. I don't have anything more to add because that is leaving with 38 special was particularly good. (laughs) (laughs) Hey man, I'll hold on loosely. I'm just not going to let go. There we go. So what about the headwind and tailwind stuff? Like that was, that was a great, great image, wasn't it? To, to bring to the table, to think about basically a, a simple, you know, don't judge a book by its cover kind of a, kind of a model. And, and the story she talked about running down to the, the fire hydrant and running back. And like, yeah. if you look and go one way, you, you're you not realizing that you have a tailwind behind you and you're going, oh, this is easy. This is great. It's it's riding a bike sometimes like when you're on a slight decline versus a slight incline it, enough that you can not if if you look, you can see it. But for the most part, you're not really noticing it. And man, I'm cruising when I'm going down. Right. I am just cruising and cruising, cruising. But even on that little slight incline, all right, at first it doesn't seem too bad, but man, after a certain amount of time, it's, it's, I'm slowing down, I'm getting tired, I'm getting worn out. And I think those analogies to, to the world are wonderful ones to have because when we think about the systematic challenges that are out there for people, it's hard to imagine what those are. Are, and that comes back to the fundamental attribution error, right? It's so easy for us to know in our own lives the challenges. Like when we turn around and face that headwind, oh man, I, this, I, I can't run as well because this wind is coming in my face. But, but others don't see that. Yes. 
that, that's because the thing. This is, this is the, there's something happening here and what it is ain't exactly clear. <laughs> okay. Was that Stephen Stills? Who was that? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. Very good. Go. Yes. Oh, <laughs> My God, I'm getting, I'm getting, you're, you're wearing off on me. It's like, I'm knowing pre seventies music. It's crazy. Uh, so this idea though, right? This, this idea of the invisible, and we've talked about this with other, other guests, this idea that when things are invisible, like the wind pushing up against us, mm-hmm. it's, we feel it, but somebody, as, as Dolly said, somebody looking out their front window can't see the wind unless there's leaves blowing or very it's, it's, it needs to be really readily apparent. And that's the problem with some of the systematic stuff. That wind isn't a hurricane necessarily. It's not bending trees over. It's not blowing things down the road. If it is, we, we would go out and we help that, right? That's some of the factors that we've addressed. But now it's just a wind. Yeah. And we're not seeing that wind and it's invisible. So how do we make the invisible visible? That's the that's the big question. Yeah. Uh, my personal experience with it, I just have to riff on this. Uh, uh, a friend from college who is now a anesthesiologist, his father was a uh, circuit court judge. And mm-hmm. his mother was actually named pediatrician of the year by Better Homes and Gardens magazine or Good Housekeeping or something in yep. the, in the seventies. Amazing family, you know, yeah. really well off, well to do. Dan was black, and he got pulled over by the cops on a regular basis. Yeah, for just because of the color of his skin. And he, he said he remembers very clearly the day that his his dad sat down and had the talk with him. This is going to happen to you. It's like holy Hannah. That never happened to me. I never got pulled over because of the color of my skin. Yeah. But, but Danny got pulled over. And and those are things that, again, 99.9% of the time get brushed off. Nothing happens out of it. You might get a ticket. You might not. You get go with a warning. But they happen. And it's only those point zero one times where it it becomes visible because something negative really bad happens out of this but for 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 people on the outside i mean not for the people that it's happening to that they're feeling it every day yeah so those are the factors that again how do we take what is invisible in our in in our lives and not apply this fundamental attribution error that, oh, I, I'm having a hard time because the wind is blowing in my face, but they're having a hard time because they're just lazy. And it's easy to do that without being able to be in their shoes and to feel the wind that is up against them. And that's tough. Dolly teed up a couple of pretty specific things, actually, that, that we can do. And to kind of go with where you were headed there, Kurt, maybe Maybe we could start with that that a thought experiment on the veil of ignorance idea. Just to, this is a step back kind of thing, right? But if we use a thought experiment to say, what would it be like? What would it be like if I wasn't born who I am? Mm. What if I don't know who, what neighborhood I grew up in or, or where my family is or you know, who my siblings are? What if I don't know all that? How would I design a police force? Yeah. Yeah. If I didn't know if that what color my skin was, right? Mm-hmm. And how am I going to design a, 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 a police force? How am I going to design a political system? How am I going to design a right. workplace? All of these factors that come yes. in yeah. that have some of these aspects 
And if I just if all right, let's play a game where there's a there's a bowl full of these different balls in them and and you reach your hand in and pull one out and it says, oh, I am a, a female of uh, Spanish descent and, you know, 33 years old with two kids and et cetera. OK, so how does that work in the design of my workplace versus I'm a 52 year old white male, you know, that has a Ph.D. Very different approaches yeah. to what then I want in a workplace. And those are the things I think it's a really great thought experiment. She did a, a, a neat one in one of her, her articles about just thinking about even some of the things that are going on. What would have happened if George Floyd would have been white? What would have happened yes. if the yeah. people storming the Capitol on January 6th would have been black and brown and wearing turbans and having long beards? Really. And, and the hard part about this is it's really hard for us to get out of our own Yes. Self. It is hard. We only experience world through our own being. But these thought experiments can at least help in trying to get us to a better realization of what that is. Yeah. What else can we do? What what other actions could we take? So she talked about the IAT. And and I think that's a fantastic thing. And we can all take it. And we can take it multiple times. And again, it's a snapshot. And it's this idea that, hey, this this will change. It will adjust, particularly if we focus in on it. But let's at least understand where some of these underlying implicit biases that I have, that they're real and they're they're there and they're they're impacting the world in the way that I see it. And so if we understand that, it doesn't necessarily change, but it gives us a better starting point to be able to make some of the changes that are necessary in our lives. Yeah. And we'll link to that in the show notes. You can take it for free. It's out on the Harvard website uh, because they actually sponsor it because of Mazarin uh, Banaji. Uh, yeah. There's one more thing, Tim. One yeah. more thing. Well, actually, there's a lot more things, but there's, there's a lot one more, more thing that I know we want to talk about, which is one of my favorite ideas of this, which is self-audit. Yeah. Do the damn self-audit. Look at look at your library. Look at the books that you've got. Look at the magazines that you're getting in your house. Uh, look at the TV programs that you're you're watching. Look at look at the friends that you have in your life. Who do you spend time with? What do yeah. you talk about? What you know? Audit a little bit of your life and take an inventory of what you're doing with it. I think that that's a really important thing. One one of my friends, Brock Ray, who you you know, he's been to a couple yeah, of the Brock. meetups and different pieces. He he brought up this idea uh, when we were thinking about just like how do we. How do we help out the community that's around here, particularly with everything that has been going on with George Floyd and the Lake Street that got, you know, had the riots and burned down? And one of the things he said, I was talking with a person of color and they said, look, you got to show up where we are. You can't expect us to always come to you. You have to show up where we are. And so, I, you know, and I to, to, to your point of doing this audit, when was the last time that I went down and bought something? at one of these stores that's on Lake Street that is in this area that had been burned out and rioted and various different right. pieces. How many times have I gone into a uh, predominantly black or you know brown Latino? I, well, actually, I live in a, in a predominantly Latino area. But, yeah. I, I, but you know, when do we do that? How many, how often are you even there? How are you, how are you showing up into the world? And if you're not, in those locations, if you're not reading books by them, if you're not watching television shows that that talk about them, that 
doesn't allow you to 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 sit in their world and to be able to see the wins that they're facing because if you look at it from the outside from far away you're not going to be able to see that win and yeah. it's only by being there it's only by taking part in what they're seeing and what they're feeling and what they're reading and and experiencing can we ever feel that wind on our own face so did have you have you done an audit have you looked at your own bookshelf my bookshelf is white it is very very yeah. white it's it, uh, i will say this i am i you know my my bookshelf is is a mix between male and female at least but again then i'm like oh yeah but there's not any non-binary you know authors in here there's not yeah. any transgender authors in here as far as you know i know and i haven't necessarily searched out those and and to a degree there's a part of of all of us where it's like there's so much stuff going on in our world you know do i have the effort or the energy to really go out and look and try to find these other viewpoints to in, incorporate them in because it's so much easier just to go oh, yeah. and and l watch the yeah. shows that i think are going to be interesting and i agree with that to a degree but i think there's also a effort that we need to make to get us into the mindset if we want to be goodish right if we want to be a little bit better than we were yesterday and i think that's a key piece so rohit bargava just one more thing about this rohit bargava talked about this idea of he subscribes to teen vogue to get yeah. him outside of his normal thing so he built a little routine he just made a little pre-commitment to say this is going to come into my house and i'm going to see what articles are popular with teen girls just yeah. i'm going to get outside of my you know, 40 plus year old Indian American dude thing and get, get something different going. And I think that that's pretty cool to, yeah. to, to do that. So there are great ways of doing it just with small devices. You don't have to work super hard at it, but it's just good to make a little bit of effort and be intentional. Well, and, and, and even thinking about this from a political perspective, right? You can subscribe to newsletters that might be from a different perspective than yours and yeah. yep. and yes you may feel like some wanting to throw up when you read some of those but it also allows you <laughs> this opportunity to to at least understand what they're hearing yeah the the conversations that the that group is having and i think we would be a much better country, a much better world if we were able to at least see that and again, understand as better as much as we can understand other people's perspectives. So, yeah, I, I have been more critical of CNN after watching more Fox News because of the spin aspect that is so evident in both of those or, uh, organizations right now it's just it's just easier to see yeah. okay all right so this week we'd love it if you give just one of these ideas a try actually try two try three <laughs> come on come on people you can do more than you can do more than one but put put these concepts to use in your life and then send us a note we would, we, I think we're, we're, we're not really going to try to, we want to get people's input. We want to hear what you have to say about this. This is the Tim and Kurt show, but man, we really think that we want your perspective, your viewpoint. Are we off the rail? Are we 
you know, what are the wins that you're facing? So let's, let's hear that. So send us, uh, you can always reach us at Twitter. Uh, I'm at at motivation guru and Mr. Houlihan here is at T Houlihan. That is T H O U L I H A N. And we'd love to hear from you and hear what you're up to Hear If you applied any of this and if it worked and what you're struggling with, what should we, who should we have on the show? Who, who do you want to hear from? What do you want us to be talking about? Do you like this grooving session or should we just end with the, the interview? Because damn, I'm tired of you talking, Kurt. All right. So let's start a conversation. And with that, we thank you for listening. And we hope that this week you go out and find your group. Mm -hmm.